Hello, it's Thursday 8th of September. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will be talking about all things travel and tourism in China. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So, there's a slight change of format today. Gary recently produced the China Travel Market Report 2021 to 2025 for Focusrite and is working on a few other China travel economy projects. So I'm going to grill him on the impact of the pandemic across the Chinese travel industry and what happens next as the world awaits the return of Chinese travelers. The big question. So, Gary, let's put you in the hot seat and dive straight in and Give us an update. What's the current situation with travel in China right now? Inbound, domestic, outbound, what's going on? Thanks, Hannah. Big question, but a gentle one to start. So inbound, domestic and outbound. Well, let's start with inbound. Uh, There's very little happening. Um, We know that China changed its regulations quite recently, removing the requirement to take a nucleic acid test before you arrive in China. And also, there's no need to state your vaccination status. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that you still have to apply for a visa, which is very difficult at the moment. It's very difficult to get into China. And of course, there is a seven-day mandatory quarantine upon arrival, plus three days of of home self-assessment. So in terms of inbound, very little is happening right now. There are very, very few flights. It's difficult to get into the country. Those rules in terms of inbound were pretty much um, put in place to allow foreign students to get into China and also any Chinese travelers that are going overseas to make it a little bit easier for them to get back for the current uh, situation. You know, these things may change over the coming months. So that's inbound. In terms of outbound, again, very little. Since January 2020, outbound tours by travel agents have been prohibited. As soon as COVID-19 hit, the government stopped travel agents and tour operators from making outbound tour sales, and that ban is still in place. You can still travel overseas as uh, a free uh, an FIT, but as, as we said, there are a lot of rules and regulations in terms of when you come back. And of course, there aren't many flights and the flights that are available are extremely expensive. So in terms of outbound, again, not very much is happening. In terms of domestic, well, that's been a difficult scenario. Uh, this, this weekend is the Mid-Autumn Festival. It's a long weekend holiday in China. So it would be ordinarily a very, very popular time to travel. We'll talk a little bit about some of the numbers on domestic travel as we go through, but it's a difficult time in China. We know that there are city lockdowns, entire cities have been locked down this year, Xi'an, Shanghai, currently Chengdu. There's also tight restrictions in many other cities, including Guiyang, uh, Shenzhen. In Beijing, there are restrictions as well. We'll come to those in a moment. So there's very little confidence to travel domestically for this holiday. Government is mostly advising against it. We have the October National Day holiday coming up at the start of October. And sentiment for that is also pretty weak, Hannah. So I would say generally at the moment, China is looking ahead to brighter days. There are optimistic things looking ahead into the future. China has a huge hotel pipeline. Almost 3,700 hotels are are in development at the moment. Ambitious airport expansion and the nation's high-speed rail network uh, is due to almost double in size from 40,000 kilometers now to about 70,000 kilometers by 2035. So, you know, looking ahead, it seems to be a bit brighter. And there's also a lot of media coverage this week about the new WTTC, World uh, Travel and Tourism Council, and Tourism Economics Report, which forecasts that China will become the world's largest travel market 
in 2032. Hannah, 2032, 10 years away. That seems seems a long time, right? Yeah, it does. So, wow. I mean, thanks for that. So essentially, not a lot going on, but the potential for a lot to go on once things kind of settle down then. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, China has a very ambitious plans for travel and tourism, always had, has had. It's invested quite heavily in infrastructure. We'll talk about that in a moment. But yeah, I mean, this, this is, it's got to get through COVID zero and COVID zero is just dominating absolutely everything. Every element of the economy and daily life at the moment is just has this horrible dark umbrella of COVID zero hanging over. it. Mm. So we'll get to COVID zero again in a minute. Um, but, you know, you, you were saying by 2032, China is going to be the largest tourism market in the world. So it must already be pretty large right now. What has the impact of COVID-19 been on the Chinese tourism industry? Because I feel like it hasn't really had that much coverage in in the media, right, outside of China. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. I think that's a very, very fair point indeed. You know, most governments, tourism boards around the world are really looking and have been looking forward to the return of Chinese tourists, but without actually looking too too closely at just how devastated the Chinese tourism industry and the Chinese tourism economy has been. It's been hit incredibly hard. There's been virtually no inbound or outbound travel for, what, two and a half years. Domestic travel has been hugely truncated because of the city lockdowns and because of fears of traveling and, and being caught if you travel. There was a situation earlier in the year, I think it was a month or so ago during the, the school holidays, where the, the island destination, Hainan Island, which is a beach resort destination, a lot of families go there for the school holidays. And it got locked down while people were actually there traveling and people couldn't get back sometimes for up to two or three weeks. So, you know, this fear of being trapped and not being able to travel back is what's really impacting travel sentiment. But if you look at the travel industry itself, I mean, it's huge. If you, for example, if we take Trip or Trip.com, you know, this huge OTA became very, very famous around the world, really, over the last decade, really internationalized. If you look at the financial impact, it's, it's just astonishing. So in 2019, C-Trip made about a 7 billion RMB profit. In 2020, it made a net loss of 3.269 billion. And in 2021, it made a net loss of 645 million. So it was slightly better in 2021 than 2020. But, you know, you just look at that from 7 billion profit one year to a 3.269 net loss the next year. I think that really shows how hard the industry has been hit. And then you also look at the airlines and the airlines are, they, you know, airlines have not been able to operate most of their international routes. So they had to divert all of their capacity back into the domestic market. And it's been, it, it's been very, very difficult for them. If you, if you go back to um, 2021, the big three carriers, so Air China, China Eastern and China Southern, they reported combined losses of 40.9 billion RMB, 40.9 billion RMB. And that compared to a combined profit the year before of 13.54 billion RMB. So you gain just a huge drop. China's three biggest airlines this year, it's got worse and worse. They've, they've reported combined losses in the first half of the year of 50 billion. So you can see that the impact on the Chinese travel industry is, is as bad now as it has been. And that is pure and simply because of COVID zero. So COVID zero, we've got to discuss that. I mean, and you know, it dominates the press. Whenever China is mentioned, it's almost inevitably followed by the words COVID zero. So talk us through, you know, is 2022's COVID zero policy different to 2021 or 2020? Has there been a, a shift in policies? 
That's a really good question, quite difficult to answer. I mean, let, let's go all the way back to the start of the pandemic, which we know no, novel coronavirus was first found, first identified in China in the city of Wuhan. We go back to the early point of 2020. Remember, there was a very, very strict lockdown in the city of Wuhan and some neighboring cities as well. This was the first global lockdown, and this really showed the world, I guess, what we were all going to experience over the coming months and years, just a very, very intense lockdown. After that, China did recover, and, and for the rest of 2020 and, and large parts of 2021, there was domestic travel happening. But again, we have started to see big cities being locked down. So I mentioned earlier Xi'an, Shanghai, Chengdu, Hainan Island. There are millions and millions of people living in these cities, and when they get locked down, um, it has just a huge impact, obviously, on travel to and from those cities. Shanghai is the biggest East Coast city as well. One of, it has two of the biggest airports. So it has that impact. But at the same time, it just affects all aspects of travel across the, across the country. Mass testing is in place. You have a, a very, very strict health code app on your phone, which is more strict than anything that we had in Malaysia or any other country in, in, in Southeast Asia. So the whole elements around COVID-0 have been magnified over the past year. And some of that, you would have to say, is political reasoning. Uh, next month will be the 20th Party Congress when Xi Jinping, who is the architect of the COVID-0 policy, will most likely, which seems almost inevitably now, become president again for a third, uh, unprecedented third term. So there has been a lot of political to and froing over the past few months for that to be put into place. There is a lot of concern in the economic side of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly Premier Li Keqiang, who is very, very focused on the damage this is doing, not just to the economy right now, but to livelihoods, unemployment is rising, and how this will knock-on effect into the future. So COVID-0 right now is as strong as it's ever been. You know, at the moment, the city of Chengdu is locked down. Chengdu is a huge city. And at the moment, you, you can't really see a way out. I think some analysts are hoping that in his speech next month, that Xi Jinping will perhaps declare victory over COVID-19, and then we might get back to some normality. Others say that's incredibly unlikely. So at the moment, I guess the, the industry, uh, the people, there is very little clarity about how China transitions away from COVID-0. Yeah, I mean, it's just staggering, isn't it? The, the sheer number of people who are under lockdown and, and still, you know, us now sat here in Malaysia, September 2022, these kind of really strict lockdowns, not being able to leave your house, this feels like a million years ago now, doesn't it? I mean, I think we last had that stricter lockdown, maybe this time last year, we were just about coming out of it. And so the thought that still millions of people in China are still being under this is um, is kind of staggering. And like you say, there there is no clear way out. And that must make it really difficult for the Chinese tourism industry to even figure out what kind of moves they can take? How can you future plan when you've just got zero visibility about what to plan for or timelines to plan for? Yeah, absolutely, Hannah. And, you know, one of the things that is that the rules do change quite frequently. I was talking to a hotel in Beijing last week. You know, to actually get into the hotel now, you once again have to take a temperature check and you have to show proof of a negative COVID test within the last 48 hours. That's just to get into the hotel. That's staff and guests as well. Now, those restrictions were lifted a while ago, but they've been brought back in. And so, yeah, it's very, very hard to forward plan when you don't know exactly how long these rules will last for and, and, and whether they could get stronger in future. So that's China. Let's talk about greater China, Hong Kong, Macau. 
are they following those same kind of policies as mainland China for reopening? And how reliant were they on mainland Chinese tourists in the past? And is it going to be Chinese travelers rather than perhaps international ones who are going to spark a tourism recovery there? Yeah, that's a good question. So there is definite alignment in terms of the way that the rules are being imposed in Macau and Hong Kong. Macau is slightly different. Macau is extremely small and it is a very, very touristic industry. So if you take tourists out of Macau, it has a small population. There hasn't actually been that many cases of COVID-19. Although that said, Macau was locked down for a, a period uh, over the last couple of months. Hong Kong has had problems throughout the pandemic, but they are both very, very intrinsic to the greater China tourism industry. We go back to 2018 for Hong Kong, and we can't really say 2019 because 2019 was that year of street protests and it really, really impacted the industry. But if we go back to 2018, there were 65 million visitors to Hong Kong in 2018, and 78% of those were from mainland China. If you look at Macau in 2019, tourism contributed 80% of GDP in Macau and 39.4 million visitors to, to Macau. And 28 million of those were from China, 7.4 million of those were from Hong Kong. So, you know, very, very localized in terms of the, the economic impact there. Chinese travelers have been able to travel to Macau for most of the pandemic. And you have seen periods where there has been sort of surges of travel, but a lot of that has been very, very short term. A lot of uh, Southern Chinese just tend to go into Macau for the day. So that's had an impact on the hotel industry. Hong Kong is, and China have been isolated from each other. Hong Kong is moving forward to trying to institute what's called a reverse quarantine so that Chinese who live and work in Hong Kong can go back to the mainland, um, but they'd have to do their quarantine in Hong Kong before they cross the border. And this is one of the big elements between Hong Kong, which is different to, to Macau. Macau is a, is a tourism destination. But the links between China and Hong Kong are business. A lot of Chinese do their banking in Hong Kong. A lot, a lot of people study there. A lot of people have family and friends that live there. A lot of people work across the border. So you know, the, the, the links between the, the mainland and Hong Kong are much more intrinsic. And, and tourism, of course, is part of that. But, uh, it, but it's slightly different than Macau. That's fascinating. I hadn't realized that such a, a large percentage of, of you know, Hong Kong's tourism was so linked to mainland China. I mean, for Macau, it, it makes sense. Like you said, there are a lot of day trippers. And when I lived in Guangzhou, I, I made quite a few day trips to Macau. But um, three destinations that are all suffering because of these, these zero COVID policies. So you mentioned earlier about the three big Chinese airlines and this massive drop in revenue. How have Chinese airlines in general adapted to the pandemic? I mean, here in Southeast Asia, we've seen many airlines going through restructuring processes. Has that happened in China? That's a good question, because the three, the three biggest airlines, the big three, are Air China, China Eastern, and China Southern. They are huge amalgamated groups. They were all consolidated many years ago. So China has these big, three big airline groups, which uh, have huge impacts on the domestic market and also international markets as well. Now, those haven't really been affected in terms of restructuring. They have made huge losses, as I said earlier, like eye-watering losses, and they are really struggling. But there are quite strict rules in terms of how they operate and their ability to restructure their business and also in terms of hiring staff. So they've had to redeploy staff rather than fire staff. They're not actually really able to do that. So that's meant that that's carried quite a lot of their losses in terms of actual staff costs, where if you look at you know, a lot of the airlines in our region, they actually shed staff quite quickly 
um, to reduce costs. That hasn't really been able to happen. Those three airlines are partially state-owned, they're partially privately owned. But the, large, the fourth largest airline um, is Hainan Airlines, which is privately owned, and that's part of the, the HNA group. Now, that's a very, very interesting story. If you, if you go back to the early 1990s, I don't know if you remember, Hannah, but Hainan Airlines, when it was kicking off, when it was, when it was starting to build, it managed to get on board the financier George Soros to actually invest in the company. Because it's based in Hainan Island rather than on the Chinese mainland, it started to get a lot of international routes, started to become very, very successful in the 90s and the 2000s. And this saw the HNA group grow expansively, and it went on this huge global buying spree. I don't even remember, it built, it bought uh, Hilton Worldwide, it bought Swissport, it bought Deutsche Bank, and it had these ambitions to become a global top 50 company by 2030. It also uh, established its own suite of hotel brands as well. Unfortunately, it did all this by borrowing too much money and it actually became hugely, hugely overdebted before the pandemic. And it was in huge trouble from the government. The regulators were really on HNA's back. There was a lot of allegations of corruption as well. So HNA Group itself has gone into bankruptcy administration during the pandemic, and that actually also includes Hainan Airlines. Now, Hainan Airlines has actually been restructured. Its debts have been restructured. It's had a huge injection of cash, and it's reduced all its plain, uh, its plain leasing pay- payments. So Hainan Airlines itself has gone through similar processes to a lot of other carriers around the region. It looks as though it's uh, a bit leaner now. It is actually... Uh, operating quite well. It looks as though it's going to make a profit this year. So that's quite an interesting story. But in terms of the big three, you know, they are still carrying huge losses because the, the domestic routes are so saturated that they're not making much profit. Now, something you just said there caught my attention. So you, you said that they were not allowed to fire staff, but they had to redeploy them. So do you think then that when airlines are permitted to fly internationally and scale up, is that going to give them an advantage actually? Because obviously, like Singapore Airlines, people have had to let people go. Now they're having to go through this whole process, right, of retraining them. Is that going to give Chinese airlines an advantage? It's a good question. And most of its planes have been flying as well. So that's another issue as well. I would, I would agree with you there. I think the fact that its staff are, are ready. Having said that they're being redeployed, if you look at some of the airports, we'll come to that in a minute. Some of the airports in, in China are pretty empty at the moment. If you look at the big international hubs in Shanghai and in Beijing, there are so few flights your staff aren't really doing very much. So getting it back up to being, you know, fully fit to, to fly um, may take a bit of time. But yes, I would say there is probably an advantage. I think the and the state coordinated nature of these airlines, they are pretty agile and they did improve their processes massively in the last 10 or 15 years. I think they will be ready to, to operate at quite a high level, but, you know, that's going to depend on on how the, the government and the aviation regulator allows new routes and new frequencies to be developed over the next two or three years. But in terms of the airlines themselves, the big three, yeah, I think they, they can handle um, stepping up their capacities quite quickly. Mm, interesting. So let's talk domestic. So pre-pandemic, China had a really large, well-developed domestic tourism industry. Did that help the industry when the pandemic hit? It did and it didn't. I mean, China is such a big numbers game. If, if you look at its population, it has about 1.43 billion people living in China. And now if you assume... As the, as the United Nations does, does, that the global population is going to hit 8 billion next month. One person every 5.5 is living in China. So you look at the numbers there and you say, well, you know, if everybody can only travel domestically and there's that many people traveling, 
then you know the numbers should be quite big. There should be a lot of travel trips, and ordinarily there are. China has always promoted domestic travel. It's built a lot of infrastructure. You know, it's it's got so many domestic airports, so many uh, domestic flights. It's got the high speed rail system. If you go back to 2019, there were around about six billion domestic travel trips in China, which is just an exorbitant number. But because of COVID and because of COVID zero, that number just just dived. And so in 2020, there were about 2.8 billion trips. So that, you know, it halved. Now, any country in the world would take 2.8 billion trips and say, well, that's, you know, that's an incredible number. But when you look at the size of the travel industry, look at the size of um, the employment numbers, the livelihoods that it supports, it's, it's simply not enough. And so the travel industry has been hugely hit. The World Travel and Tourism Council estimates that domestic tourism spending in 2019 in China was about 938 billion US dollars. But in 2021, that was 459 billion. So you can see it, it's halved again. And the economic impact of that is devastating across the country. So it did help in terms of the fact that there is, when travel has been permitted, people have been traveling. But it's been so stop, stop, start. It's been so truncated. And there is this fear now, particularly over the last few months, that if you do travel, you could get trapped and you wouldn't be able to get home um, for a considerable period of time. Travel numbers at the moment are are pretty low. Uh, The optimism for the upcoming, the National Day holiday week at the beginning of October, a lot of local governments are advising against travel. I think a lot of the travel that will happen will be just very, very close to home won't be expansive, won't be very much long distance across China travel. So, yeah, I mean, the, the impacts are accruing and, the, and those are having a huge economic impact on, on China's overall economy, not just its travel economy. Yeah, I can imagine it's such such big numbers, aren't we, we're talking about when we talk about China. So have there been any particular trends that we have seen for domestic Chinese travellers? And if so, are those trends going to continue beyond the pandemic? Yeah, there have been a few trends, I think, that, that we've noticed. And some of those, I would say, are quite similar to Southeast Asia. So in its annual report this year, Trip said that it, last year, when travel was happening relatively frequently, it added more boutique hotels, it added more glamping, it added more camping and more hiking tours because there was a real demand for those. Now, I think one of the interesting things about glamping in China is it's very branded. So actually, this actually became quite a, an opportunity for some of the luxury brands, Fundy, I think it was one, I think Dior, they started creating their own branded glamping clothing and, and equipment and accessories. So it became a sort of upscale version of glamping. That's one of the ways that the consumer economy is, is very, very strong in the travel economy in China. I think another trend has definitely been what's called microtourism. So that's very small trips within province. We've seen certainly um, a decrease in group tours, particularly larger group tours. Family group tours have been quite popular. We've seen a lot of self-drive. Winter sports has been very popular, particularly last winter because of the Winter Olympics, which took place in Beijing. And of course, rail trips. It has this national high-speed rail uh, network, so it makes it very quick and easy to get around by train rather than spending time in an airport. You can get on your train pretty quickly, get uh, right to the heart of a city from the city that you're traveling from. Um, so I think that's, that's, been quite, that's been quite popular. And also, you know, Hainan beach getaways, those were always popular before the pandemic and it's a remote destination it's away from mainland china um, so that's been quite popular up until the last month or so so i think a lot of these trends are, are similar to what they were before the pandemic they've probably just been a little bit adapted for the needs of domestic tourism you know and how they will endure into the future is is, is still unknown really um, we don't really know how domestic travel will will bounce back after people are able to travel again 
I would say. Yeah, just like for Southeast Asia. I really want to pick your brains about technology. So especially for China, it's always had this very unique kind of digital ecosystems. How has that developed during the pandemic, particularly for the, the travel industry? Yeah, it's been very important. So China is the ultimate mobile first nation. You know, smartphones are just everywhere there. You know, everybody has them. The e-commerce infrastructure is very, very advanced. E-payments are habitual. Everybody uses them all the time. And cash is very, very rarely used now in the Chinese economy. And it has a very, very strong app-based ecosystem, super app style ecosystem. Now, what we've seen quite a lot in, in the past few weeks, months, I would say, is there's been a real d- development in the consumer economy towards NFTs, towards blockchain and towards metaverse, particularly from consumer brands. They are really leading this. And we've seen a lot of digital, digital connect, uh, collections um, that we haven't seen elsewhere in the world. So made for China, special for China digital collections. And I think that's one of the interesting things, looking from the outside that the, the rest of the world will, will probably take note of, because that is starting to impact the travel industry as well. In terms of the, the travel industry digitalization, it hasn't changed hugely in terms of the number of apps or the apps that are used. But certainly the investment from companies like OTAs and hotels has been to really ramp up their digital capabilities. And what they're really trying to do is is make their content channels much more engaging. Now, Chinese OTAs and and hotels use content in a slightly different way to the rest of the world. It's very much a focus on user-generated content. So travelers take their images, they take their videos, they take their recommendations, and they comment on each other's. And this actually goes onto, not onto social media platforms, but actually onto the OTA sites themselves. And there's been a lot of investment. This has um, become a real tactic to try and drive content, to try and drive stickiness, and to try and drive, obviously, conversion into sales, particularly in the lower tier cities. That's where a lot of this has been targeted. I think if we go back over the last four or five years, economists have been pointing to the fact that the lower tier cities in China are really where the hubs of travel growth, both domestically and internationally, are likely to come from. They're becoming more affluent. Their ambitions are changing in terms of travel. And the hotels and the OTAs have really, really tried to tap into third, fourth, and even fifth tier cities to do that. There was one uh, OTA called Tongcheng, which has transformed its name. It doesn't now call itself an OTA, an online travel agent. It calls itself an ITA, an intelligent travel agency, because it is using much more AI, machine learning. It's trying really, really hard to actually turn its engagement with travelers who are staying longer on its platforms and really turn that into convertible um, sales. I think that's something we'll start to see reaping the benefits over the next few years. They've also used that as well to to make tailored digital promotions for target cohorts, which I think is something we haven't seen quite so much in the rest of the world. So OTAs and, and hotels are really focused on cohorts such as Gen Zs, solo travelers, students, young families, group tourists, and especially senior vacationers. And a lot of that has been based around digital engagement and using pretty high-tech, advanced AI and intelligent technology. And I think that's something that the world will really notice when Chinese travelers are traveling overseas again, is that their expectations of technology usage have have been increased. That's fascinating. ITA, ITA. I love that intelligent travel agent. So, Gary, you mentioned just then about Fendi and glamping, and I find that fascinating. And you, you said shopping and, and retail and travel have always been you know, very closely associated over the past decade. 
are we going to see a revenge spend from Chinese travelers once airport gates reopen? I think we will, but I think it will be slightly different. I think what, what's happened in China was happening anyway before the pandemic, and that's that it's just much easier now to buy internationally branded goods in China than it was before. So that rush to buy when you go overseas is perhaps not so much, not so necessary. I think Chinese travelers, particularly those who are more experienced now, want to have more experiences. Shopping will be a part of that, particularly at the airports, at the, at the duty freeze. But I think brands have also started to look very, very differently at the Chinese market. A good example is Hainan Island, where you have all these massive, massive duty-free centers. With There's a new one being built in Haikou that has 800 brands inside it. And a lot of these brands are global brands where they've actually been producing special lines and product ranges just for Chinese travelers. So I think, you know, the, the, the desire to buy international products won't be there, but it will be there in terms of destination relevant products that you can't get in China. So if you're traveling to a destination, you want to buy products that are from that destination that have a sense of location. And of course, the, the landmark fashion houses in Italy and France, they're, they're still going to be very popular as they are with all uh, Asian travelers. So yes, I think there will be revenge spend. I just think the focus will change slightly. That's interesting. And I have to ask the big question because I'm sure all of our listeners <laughs> want to know, when will Chinese outbound travel restart, Gary? What's your best guess? It's very, very hard to say. I think the feeling at the moment is quite gloomy within China. I think there's more optimism outside of it. I was talking to somebody in Thailand this morning who said that they've been given an inclination that it could be Q2, it could be Q3 next year. We don't know. The one way we'll look at China's reopening, I think, is the fact of when tour groups actually, when tour group sales are actually permitted again. That will be the barometer of China's opening. And I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. That could even be into the second half of next year. I think we will see more FIT travel from China out into, into the outside world, but that will depend on flights and the availability of being able to travel to destinations that people want to go to. So I don't think we're going to see this huge reopening of borders. I don't think it's going to happen in one fell swoop. You know, I think it's a case of managing expectations. And I know that a lot of destinations in our region will be looking at Spring Festival, which is quite early this year. I think it's towards the end of January. But I would say I think that's extremely unlikely. So I'm getting the message that, you know, Chinese travel industry is not going to instantly rebound. Are there certain segments that you think will bounce back faster than others? And which ones will re recover slower? Yeah, I think that will probably mirror what we've seen elsewhere. And I think there'll be a huge rush for VFR. I mean, there's, a, there's a huge Chinese diaspora around the world. A lot of families have students, sons or daughters that are traveling, that, that are studying in other countries. I think we'll see that rush as we have seen in, in most countries from, from our region. That, that will lead the way. Business travel, I think, will, will rebound quite quickly. Governmental travel is a huge part of the Chinese outbound economy. That will come back, I think, once uh, Xi Jinping is supposed to be taking his first overseas trip. Uh, in the coming weeks. He's supposed to be going to the G20 summit in Bali. You know, I think that will be quite a signal um, that for business travelers and government travelers that they, they may be able to travel again. Uh, it won't be easy, but they will be able to do it perhaps more easily in, in 2023. I think those are going to be the big segments. FIT, I think, will just start to develop and we'll see different cohorts. As, as I mentioned about tour groups, I'm, I'm just not sure that that requires um, the government to actually make a decision and, and actually pass a law on that. So that's quite difficult to say. But I would say VFR definitely in business travel. And if you had to highlight the three most important changes in Chinese traveler behavior for Southeast Asian tourism stakeholders who you know want to attract Chinese outbound travelers when the borders reopen, what would they be? 
I think, be very aware of just how difficult it's been for Chinese travelers in terms of their own health checking, their own health awareness, um, the apps and the testing they've had to do, the green codes they require, the masking. It's more stringent than anywhere else in the world. And that is habit forming. You know, we've seen that in Southeast Asia, that these things do become very habit forming and they take a while to dissipate. So I think Chinese travelers going overseas, particularly into our region, will be nervous and be aware of the fact that they don't want to be congregating in large groups. I think they'll want comfort and reassurance. So I think, you know, you've got to make sure you've got your Chinese speaking staff fully briefed on the situation as it has been in China. So they understand how Chinese travelers are feeling when they're in your destination. I think some of the things that we will see, some of the positive elements will be that there will be a surge of things that people have missed during the pandemic. So delayed weddings and honeymoons, family celebrations, life landmarks, celebrating family birthdays, that kind of thing. I I think we'll see a bit of that. Um, And I think we'll definitely see a lot of Chinese travelers booking into luxury resorts because I think there'll be that comfort factor as well as the isolation away from other people. So I think those are probably the key things I would say right now. Fascinating stuff. So that brings us to the close of our look at the current state of travel and tourism in China. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget, as always, to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week. We look forward to talking to you then.